So I'm delighted now to introduce Christina Riggs um, from University of East Anglia. She trained as an Egyptologist um, and she also worked as a museum curator here at the Ashmolean and in Manchester. Uh, she has a recent uh, publication. Um, forthcoming. Oh, for, sorry, forthcoming. Next yes, year. that's it. Uh, in the Bloomsbury series. Um, on the role of photography during the excavation of Tutankhamen's tomb. Um, and her paper today is Sticking Points, Photographic Albums and Forgetful Archives of Egyptian Archaeology. Thank you very much and um, thank you to Geraldine um, Deborah and Costanza for the invitation to speak to you um, today. Um, I'm going to be speaking a bit about um, um, work that I'm writing up, but also about some new work, and you'll be able to spot the difference, I think, but it's given me a chance to, uh, to think about um, um, where to go next, and, and also I'll be showing material that will be part of the um, Griffith Institute tour tomorrow morning. If you've ever made a traditional photo album, you may remember how hard it, um, it was. I don't do it anymore, but it, it was really hard to get photographs to stay in place with the little sticky corners. Um, so I have a very tactile memory of doing that. Uh, this album, compiled by the archaeologist Flinders Petrie in 1890, found another solution. Its pages have been neatly sliced to fit the corners of quarter plate prints. In Petrie's hand, below each print, is a brief caption and a number. Um, at the top corners, the penciled page numbers that you see are a more recent edition made in the archive here in Oxford that is now the album's home. Home is a telling word, and one we, we heard earlier today with um, Fred's talk. Home is a telling word when thinking about place, and in thinking about archaeology, Home is usually in contrast to the field, which for my subject is Egypt. It's one of many neat binaries that photography challenges and demolishes. In my talk today, I have in mind photo albums as archival devices, but also their various homes, their archival homes now, um, and also the paths they've taken from where they were created to where they have ended up. Albums have often been discussed as tools of memory, but depending on archival practices and disciplinary priorities, tools of memory are also tools of forgetting. <coughs> if I can take one small quote um, from Archive Fever, and I do that not because it's Derrida, but because it's a book with archaeology running right through it from the Freud Museum and his collection of antiquities um, to the Bay of Naples. So the quote is, archivization produces as much as it records the event. Archaeology is a discipline for which place, provenance as it's often called, is everything. The events that archaeologists photographed in colonial Egypt were many and varied, but were and are often organized by place, by site, S-I-T-E. Doing photography and making an album helped produce place, and in particular, the place or places where Egyptology thought of itself as doing its work. 
as objects that embody movement and portability, I also suggest that photograph albums may offer a way to look more closely and more critically at the place Egypt itself has occupied, not only in the imaginary and, and um, practice of colonial archaeology, but in the self-identity of Egyptology today. Um, I'm going to come back to that album, to this album, and to that point about Egyptology today at the end of my talk. And Ooh. Is there not an easy way to do this? Yes, even up press left, apparently. Okay, I'll, I'll mess it up next time too. <laughs> right. No, it's not going. Left. The keyboard, just left? The left, ah, the left thingy. <laughs> the left thingy, sorry, I'm Matt. Right, um, okay. So, uh, the title of one recent history of Egyptology published this year unproblematically characterized the late 19th and early 20th centuries as the discipline's golden age, and you can't get much more golden than the tomb of Tutankhamun, discovered in 1922 in the Valley of the Kings at Luxor. So this is my first example of albums and the problem of place. Ten albums from the estate of the tomb's excavator, Howard Carter, are kept today in the archive of the Griffith Institute here in Oxford. The Institute was established in 1939 to promote the study of Egyptology here at Oxford University. Coincidentally, that was the year Howard Carter died, and his records of the tomb were the first significant donation that the Griffith Institute received after its founding donation. Although each album is around the same size, there are actually, um, it's, there seem to be two sets compiled at different points. One in 1924, after the first two um, years of work, the two, first two seasons, and a second around 1926, so after a bit of a gap and after the king's mummy had um, been unwrapped. And I think we're going to look at that one tomorrow. Not the mummy, the album. <laughs> no, there will not be any mummies tomorrow. Um, the identical, let's try this again. The identical handwriting in, inside all of the albums um, is that of a man named Harry Burton, the photographer of record for the tomb. His labeling and the whole structure of the albums point to their most obvious function. They are a consultation set for the glass negatives and they are organized by types of object, um, by events, so there's an album dedicated to the mummy unwrapping, or by landscape as a place, so the landscape around the setting of the tomb. But place is part of the album's history as well, and that's what really got me thinking about this, this topic or this way in. There are an additional five albums, nearly identical to Carter's first set, um, which are now in Heidelberg, in the university uh, library there. They were purchased from a London book dealer around 1980. Where these other five albums had been in the meantime, or who they originally belonged to, no one seems to know. Um, and then that sort of raises a question of, well, why were they produced in the first place and where were they produced in the first place? Inside the albums here in Oxford, there are a couple of surviving, just hanging on stickers, showing that the albums were bought at the London firm of James Sinclair, which um, from correspondence we know that both Carter and Burton, the photographer, used for their supplies, and Sinclair then would ship things from London out to Egypt. I suspect that Burton then made up, printed the photographs and made the albums 
um, at, at Luxor, where Carter had his main home in the 1920s, and Carter's home included a dark room. Burton also made a separate set of um, Tutankhamun albums for um, his actual employer, which was the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Um, these albums, as you can see, they're, they're now dismantled. They were dismantled a few years ago, are in a different format entirely than Carter's, and I think they were made using American, an American supplier, so with materials shipped out, again, to Luxor, because they were made and kept in the museum's rather luxuriously appointed dig house, um, there's home house again, at Luxor until 1948, when the museum formally closed down um, its work at Luxor. So in 1948, um, dozens and dozens of these albums from their work over 30 years in Egypt were shipped back to New York. The Tutankhamun albums traveled yet again in 1951. From New York, they came to Oxford to spend a winter, um, allowing the Griffith Institute to compare the, the two sets, the sort of Carter set and the New York set. Um, Carter set had, of course, I should also add, you know, Carter also from closed down his own home in, uh, in Egypt in the 1930s and moved to London, presumably bringing the negatives and the albums with him at that point. So there's a lot of moving around. Photo albums were a movable feast, from taking, developing, and printing the photographs to sticking and labeling them. Um, in an album, to the ongoing effort of giving them an archival function in line with the needs of Egyptology and in line with changing ideas of access to the field as Egypt became more, I don't know if independent is the right word, let's say self-managing in the 1930s and again in the post-war era with a big split around 1952 and the, uh, the revolution, um, the free officers coup. This album is later, so the photographs are from 1930. The photographer was a man named Reginald Heathcote, who at the time he took these photographs was um, the chair in pharmacology at Cairo University. He was an Oxford man through and through. And he took these photographs when traveling in the south of Egypt and in the Anglo-Egyptian Sudan with another Oxford man, Francis Griffith the university's first professor of Egyptology and the man who endowed the Griffith Institute. Most of the photos in this album relate to Griffith's excavations at Kalwa in the Sudan, so it is known now in the archive as the Kalwa album. Um, and Kalwa, if you've been to the Ashmolean Museum Egyptian Galleries, it's where the, the shrine, the, the little mini temple comes from. I use this album to introduce Griffith as a, as a historical personage, but also as another example of the post-war repositioning of photographs and albums. Here, not physical, the albums were already in um, Oxford, um, I think, by that, by that point, um, but intellectual and, and functional. Griffith died in 1934. Heathcote moved, um, he took up a chair in Wales, actually, so he brought everything back to to London and I think had given this material in the meantime to Griffith, so the material is here in England, but it was only 20 years later, again after the Second World War, around 1950-1951, that another scholar named McAdam used these photos to publish some of Griffith's earlier work. So they're still in a circle of, sort of Egyptologists who are using them in a certain evidentiary way. 
pasted into the front of the Kawa album is McAdams' neatly typed up explanation of the photographer's Heathcote's numbering system. And we don't need to worry about numbers here. I'd love to, but we don't have time. Um, what has caught my eye in this in McAdams' um, observations is um, he, he points out that, quote, some of the photographs have been taken after the expedition had returned home. At the time, home for Heathcote was Cairo. And the photographs that McAdam seems to be referring to are photographs like this one, or this one, um, which were mounted in, in other albums. There's a whole series of albums um, that Heathcote left without any numbers or any identifying captions. And I think McAdams' note, um, as he's done all this work just to try to extract what he wanted for his own work, McAdams' note can barely contain a certain sense of frustration at the inconsistency, as he calls it, of the negative numbering and the album labeling. But perhaps the real frustration was the inconsistency of the photographs themselves. Because more than archaeology per se had been photographed, more than the site or the field, Heathcote's albums let other people and other places he had visited into their covers. An excavation is above all meant to be an engagement with a place and its ancient past. Yet albums have al always operated in several registers and in more complex ways, as we've just seen. Uh, for archaeology, ways um, that the field now tends to ignore when consulting albums for historical research. So this is an earlier album, again from Griffith's work in the Sudan, but this time using his own photographs. He was there with his, with his wife and his um, Egyptian um, expedition leader, his foreman, Raiz. From its inside leaf, this album declares its concern with place, a single establishing shot of the virgin site that would become Sanam Cemetery. It is then organized by the kinds of things that Griffith and, and his wife considered worth recording, the kinds of things that made this place archeological. So we get, it's a cemetery, we get graves, we get lots and lots of graves, um, and skeletons, some of which we can see in the note above, were collected to be sent to Dr. Ruffer at the Cairo Medical School. Sanam was also a place with beads, lots and lots of them, photographed in a very different way and at a one-to-one -one scale, and then the prints annotated, um, because all of these beads were collected to be distributed to museums and sponsors in Europe. So there's another sort of way of thinking about networks and relations to the distribution of objects, but the, the photographs themselves are here in this album. Sanam was also a place with living people suited for inclusion in a photo album ostensibly about a 2,500-year-old cemetery. Um, there's a series of photographs um, of nine boys from the Shayia um, ethnic group, an Arab um, ethnic group of northern Sudan, who were photographed straight on in their underclothes and in left-facing profile, which, among other things, shows their scarification. And we are, so this is 1912, 1913, these are taken. So we are 40 to 50 years on from um, the albums that Chris was showing us. But um, we could think about the visual force, the visual rhetoric here in photography. 
The album also, towards the end, includes photographs of local people going to market, a funeral procession, and the Egyptian supervisors Griffith had brought with him, as well as local Sudanese laborers, leveling the site after the cemetery had been cleared. So these are near the end of the album, as if we're zooming out again from that opening shot, circumscribing a place already emptied and left behind, while the archaeologists move on to Cairo and to Oxford, which is where I suspect the album may very well you know, have been actually made up. There are no photographs in this album of the, quote, European bungalow that Griffith describes in the publication, describes he and his wife um, renting quite comfortably on the opposite side of the river, nor are there photographs of the hospital and the main road that covered the part of the cemetery they couldn't excavate because the hospital and the main road were in the way. In a study of this cemetery published a few years ago, an Egyptologist who has revisited Griffith's records here in Oxford lamented that, quote, the visual documentation is very poor. Only a few photographs were done in the field. Thus, we have few pictures of the tombs themselves. There are, in fact, I think about 600 photographs from this site over what was a very short and compact excavation season with just two people doing the, the recording work. Um, but this archaeologist in her study makes no mention of photographs that show people going to market or boys lined up in their underwear. You can study a place called Sanam Cemetery without ever knowing that such photographs exist. I'm going to throw in two more examples briefly because I was very conscious in, in thinking about, art of, about albums and looking at the albums just you know, that I've seen here in Oxford and, and other archives, how very diverse they are um, in, in every possible way. Um, so here's one. I think we might get this out tomorrow um, at, the, at the Griffith. You know, so there are so many different kinds of albums physically and who they were made for, why they were made, their, their character now and, and where they are. Um, but that somehow now, because they're brought together in a certain way as Egypt, or as Egyptian archaeology, they, they wind up speaking to each other um, when they had very different roles to start with. So something like this one um, is much more personal and informal. It's a, it's a sort of, I love that drawing. It's essentially a travel album, um, but belonged to a scholar named, um, named Milne, um, who was, who did work in, in Egypt and, and was an, an archaeologist and a classical scholar. Um, I thought it's also a useful reminder that Egypt isn't one place. And so places like the Sudan, where Griffith was working, or the Sinai, are c conceived in, in a different way. They're photographed and documented um, in a particular way. So we get photographs um, that focus on the, the journey, the process of the journey. There's It's kind of more exotic um, than going to, to Luxor, say, at the time. Um, and this is a nice connection. I was thinking about networks and, and personal connections again. So we get people brought together here, an, an armed camel driver, and Mrs. Ruffer there on the camel, who's the wife of the medical doctor in Cairo, who would have been receiving those skeletons a few years down the road, being shipped up from Sudan. At the other end of the spectrum, from a you know, very personal-feeling album like this one, we get very... Uh, formal albums, this is for Costanza <laughs> here, from the um, Royal Library in Turin. So these are two um, 
gilded, you know, leather, completely unique. They're hand calligraphed inside with a report of the excavation sponsored by the king of Italy in Egypt. So they're bringing that fieldwork back and producing it in Turin to present to uh, Vittorio Emanuele um, here. And just to give you an idea um, from the inside of one, again, the first um, plate is an establishing shot here of the, the Valley of the Queens at, at Luxor. And um, ironically, I suppose just by coincidence, it was the king, Vittorio Emanuele III, who would eventually wind up in Egypt, where he died um, in exile and is buried at Alexandria in 1947. Egyptian archaeology was not the only institution disrupted by the war. So I want now, finally, to return to the album I started with, compiled by Flinders Petrie, the father of Egyptian archaeology, as he's often called, around 1890, and circulated to his colleagues in England with instructions in the front cover about how they could purchase prints of the photographs if they wished. Um, I don't know if there was much demand for photographs of cloud formations over the site of Hawara in the Fayum Basin, but it says something for the relationship between Egyptology's geographic and intellectual landscapes at the time that canal banks and clouds could both belong. This album was digitized just a few years ago, starting, I was picking their brains in the archive yesterday, they're starting around sort of 2007, 2008. So after, I'm looking at Claire, after the, pit, the, um, the Tibet album project at the Pitt Rivers. So a kilometre away, we're in a very different place right here in Oxford. Um, so this is how the um, Petrie album 8 was, was digitised um, with a screen grab um, that you can see. So each print from the album was slipped out of the page, scanned and uploaded to a matrix organised by the name of the archaeological site, which is the top field in every sense of the word there, Hawara, and then assigned at the bottom a bibliographic citation, so topographical bibliography. This is a standard Egyptological reference work established by Griffith almost a century ago. And there's the full name. If you just known as a top bid for obvious reasons. Um, so this was a, a, a reference project that Griffith really initiated and got one of his students to, to set up about a century ago, and it is ongoing. It is a project that organizes ancient inscribed materials, so anything inscribed with ancient Egyptian texts, whether an object or a structure, and it organizes them by site. So volume four is about Lower Egypt, Middle Egypt, where the Fayum Basin is and where Hawara is. In other words, in the online presentation of this photo album as an Egyptological resource, a photograph of clouds in the Egyptian sky in 1890 has been fixed to a place imagined as be belonging to an ancient literate society, archaeologically recovered and in the past. Nowhere does this digital version of the album mention, much less illustrate, that Petrie Album 8, with its photographs of clouds, was made by recycling the Bromley Directory from 1882. Bromley was Petrie's home in Kent. We are suddenly in quite a different place. 
So to conclude, I'll try to. What does a photograph album help us to remember or allow us to forget, whether in its original construction of place, in its subsequent movements from place to place as the imperial world order expanded and collapsed, or in its shift between archival forms, from directory to digital, for instance? Between their covers, photo albums connected people, sites, and artifacts, but the larger sense of place they created, a sense of interlinked fields of operation, seems to have been overlooked, excluded, or viewed only through a nostalgic haze as these albums passed into archives and as decolonization <coughs> transformed archaeological work within Egypt. Most excavation archives remain with their sponsoring institution or in subject-specific repositories like the Griffith Institute. They remain, in other words, within the discipline of Egyptology, but largely outside of Egypt. What these archives might tell us about modern history is rarely the concern of these institutions for whom photographs and albums represent the chance to identify sites, inscriptions, or artifacts, evidence as if those are neutral and objective things that can be extracted from stuck-on labels and fiddly photo corners. So I've let you look at this photo for a little bit here. <coughs> Albums are archives that embody place in multi-layered, multi-sited ways, including their own portability. That sense of place and of movement between places is lost, of course, if albums are apprehended only in digital forms that dismember them. The larger focus of my work, the background here, is this, that I would like to see Egyptian archaeology through its archives confront its implication in the colonial past and its complex relationship with Egypt throughout the 20th century, an Egypt it captured unawares and constructed through a camera lens. For other gaps and uncomfortable reminders, albums should offer a way to do this, but only, of course, if their objecthood rather than their objectivity is foregrounded. Some things stick and some things come unstuck. Flinders Petrie took this photograph at Giza. His caption tells us where the pyramids are. It's a place Petrie knew well. It's a photograph that will never tell us much about the pyramids, but it could tell us quite a lot about the places Egyptology occupied in its golden age and the places it occupies now, if it would only turn the mirror on itself. Thank you.